Welcome back to Out of the Question, brought to you by The Kicker. This week on The Kicker, you can read about my war against Americanisms and how Americanisms won. And on Wednesday, I'll attempt to list the top 10 sketches in Australian comedy history as suggested by my friends on social media. So you can check that out at thekicker.substack.com. And if you want to pay five bucks, it not only helps keep the kicker on the road, but you also get bonus content on the podcasts and a whole archive of writing and journalism. That's thekicker.substack.com. Now, I've been lucky with the content offered by the guests on this podcast, but this guy has an unusually inspiring story. Working class boy becomes a political operative at the age of 19, works his way up to becoming an advisor in the Rudd and Gillard governments before pivoting to cricket commentary and becoming one of the best-known cricket broadcasters in the world. His name is Adam Collins, and in 2018 he saw there was no Australian radio presence covering the test series between Australia and Pakistan in the UAE, so he used the money he was saving to buy a house and bought the broadcast rights for the series. He talks about the stress of that deal here, particularly finding a station he could on-sell the broadcast to, as well as overcoming tech and censorship issues. Right now, the whole saga's been developed into a feature film. Quick shout-out to The Final Word, the best cricket podcast going around, hosted by Adam and his on-air partner, Jeff Lemon. I hope you enjoyed this chat. If you want to see the video where Adam discusses the two funniest cricketers he's ever met, head over to the kicker at Substack. It's on there now. I started off by asking Adam how he thinks his colleagues would describe him. I suppose there'd be like a spectrum. There's the positive interpretation um, through to the neutral, through to what's probably the negative, and they all orient around the same personality trait. If you're being generous, you could say passionate, dedicated, that might move through to uh, sort of compulsive uh, um, uh, and it might kind of uh, edge towards obsessive for those who don't like me quite so much or, or, um, <laughs> uh, or, or, um, or uh, impatient might be the uh, other right. word that comes up. And I think that even those who may not appreciate that style would, would, would I hope respect that it's coming from the right place that I, when I'm working, I'm just trying to get stuff done and, um, and, uh, and I'm usually quite committed to whatever it is that I'm doing, be that when I was working in politics or, or more recently over the last eight or nine years since moving into journalism and broadcasting. So let, let's go back because, I, I mean, to, you know, it's interesting talking about your personality traits and, and how they apply. So you, what did you do at uni? What did you study at uni? Well, I, I studied uh, politics and history and briefly law. Uh-huh. Um, so... I I came into it in a slightly unusual way. I I studied my last year of high school in the USA as like a, I I, I got, um, I was kindly awarded an opportunity to study in America as part of a program. And and my parents, we were a working class family, very working class family in the Southeast suburbs of Melbourne. So the chance for me to go and study abroad at that young and influential, I suppose, age um, was one that they were keen for me to do. And of course I, you know, um, wasn't shy about getting out and seeing the world even then at age 16, 17, and did quite well in high school in the States. Where was that? So that opened up, uh, that was in Buffalo, New York. So in oh, the, wow. right in the corner of New York State up towards Niagara Falls, a, a little um, town called East Aurora, New York, where huh. it was quite a um, it was quite a white bread place. Indeed, the only uh, person of colour was my host cousin, Pete, who was um, African-American. Everybody else I knew in the town was white. Um, but wow. it was a significant year politically, right? It was a 
well, I say I say that like you would know this, but it was the um, after I arrived in the country, maybe six weeks later, the Twin Towers came down, the September oh. 11 attacks, and it was just a fascinating time to to be in America as a young lad, taking a lot in, um, having a political bent, but I wasn't a political activist at that stage. But you know, uh, feeling like I was maybe plugged into the news cycle or, or whatever it was, um, and seeing the way that. Americans responded to that, be it in the classroom or I was playing American football at the time in the varsity team. I was the the uh, the punter. This won't oh, surprise wow. you to learn yeah, on, yeah. on that side. So uh, one of my lame claims to fame, and I'm not sure whether this is perfectly true or whether in the 22 years since I might have like added mayonnaise to it at some point and it's become <laughs> the truth in my head. Because truth's a funny thing like that, right? Your Your own truth can often not be accurate to what happened. It just becomes your truth. But I think I'm right in saying I had the longest punt in New York State that year in a game. I had a 67-yard punt, which I'll never oh forget that God. number. Yeah, And that was because it rolled about 20 yards at the end, but a torpedo <laughs> punt with the wind that rolled and rolled and rolled all the way down to um, the end zone and was collected on the two-yard line. But, um, you know, so there was an opportunity for me to stay in the States and, and kick footballs after high school, weirdly. Um, oh but um, by that point, I was quite committed to coming home and and owing to doing pretty well in high school I had the chance to go to Monash University um, where I was always destined to become a political student history student and that opened up the door to law and by the time I got into law I was um, I guess I was too far gone as a political hack on campus and inside the Labor Party that um, my studies probably um, took a backseat to activism at that point so I I was a good student at uni but um, I, I was never a and never an outstanding one as far as the the um the broader opportunities that were presented to me at that that age. So so you went straight from uni to becoming a staffer. Was that in state politics or was were you, did you go straight to national? To be honest, it happened at the same time. My first wow. job in politics, I was nineteen, um, which is way too young and it's all very silly. But I got the chance to work for a bloke called Tim Holding. Tim was a um, was uh, an extraordinary talent. Uh, he, he, yeah, pre-selected and elected at, at 26 in what was then the seat of Springvale in the state parliament. Uh, went on to be a minister when he was 30, when um, when Steve Brax was re-elected in 2002. And by the time I rock up, 0304 into his orbit, um, you know, running around, uh, trying to do everything all at the same time, uh, he kindly offered me a job working in his office. I think it was two days a week as yeah. an electorate officer which of course lent itself in that era to doing everything else as well. I lived out of that office. I was there seven days a week. Um, wow. It was, uh, it, it became my life almost immediately. And that was from when I was 19. So I, I spent yeah, a couple of years with Tim uh, before moving to other opportunities in state politics and ultimately up to Canberra when I was 23. And, and so the Canberra situation, I know from talking to you, did, who did you work for in, in the first instance? So, yeah, I I played the like internal Labor Party game in Victoria pretty hard in my early twenties. I guess that's my recollection. Anyway, you make a lot of friends, you drink a lot of beers, but you also butt heads with a lot of people, and yeah, this irrational sort of hatred of the other factions in the party, which these yeah, days yeah. sounds so ridiculous, right? Like, uh, like some of my best friends are in the left. Like, you know, some of my <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, um, I was in a part of the right, um, mm. and um, you know, you kind of build up this idea that. Uh, those who aren't in your group or aren't in your cult, I suppose, are, are evil or something like that. When that's 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 a that's a bloody nonsense. But um, through all of that, uh, the relationships I developed. Uh, one of my close friends had gone to work for Kevin Rudd when he became opposition leader, uh, and 
in the lead up to the campaign, uh, a memo went around the office or something like that. The request to the staff in Rudd's office, they wanted a couple of young kids who wanted to get a bit of blood in the teeth. They had that kind of personality trait to go out there and brawl in the 07 campaign. And my mate thought, I know a guy in Melbourne who fits that criteria. <laughs> so I got the call up and it was effectively a, a um, I suppose you'd call it a, a media, a junior media advisor, media assistant, something like that, where really my role in practice was to, um, and, and a close friend of mine, Maggie, did it in Sydney and she came up as well. We were um, getting the newspapers at two in the morning off the, uh, you know, during the campaign. And in my case, I was... Um, sort of developing um, sheets of inconsistencies, what the Liberal Party, Liberal National Party ministers were saying and, you know, going through transcripts, trawling every uh, public utterance to try and find opportunities. And um, it was just a kind of a, a pretty low-level um, hack job. Um, but it, it meant that I was able to see close to hand how the senior media operators did their thing across the campaign. And when Labor won in 2007, and that was a... a, a huge night for all of us having worked on the campaign um, I was given the chance to interview for a job in the initial when well, the inaugural prime minister's media unit because you know labor had been out of power for 11 and a half years so they ran a, a recruitment process and I interviewed I remember going up to Canberra with brand new black shoes on that I bought the day before had blisters bleeding through my trousers when doing um, this interview with uh, what was then the PM's deputy chief of staff and uh, senior press secretary and the deputy chief of staff who became the chief and became a good friend of mine said, look, yeah, we'll bring you on board, mate. And if you're rubbish, we'll just get rid of you straight away. So don't worry about it. Like, don't, don't worry about moving <laughs> your whole life up here. Just punt you. Um, so if it doesn't work out, like, you know, don't get too stressed out about the whole thing. So um, uh, with, with expectations suitably managed, I packed up my car, um, drove to Canberra and, and started my new life. Oh, my God. And so you worked for Rudd for a while and, and then you moved on to Swan and Gillard? Yeah, so um, Rudd was PM until the uh, it was the June of 2010. I moved next door to the Treasurer's office um, in earlier that year, in I think it was February 2010, uh, when Wayne Swan was the Treasurer. Before he became Deputy PM, you probably remember that he became Julia's Deputy after Rudd was knocked off in that internal ballot. But you know, when I moved over, it wasn't an act of hostility. It was uh, it was. Um, I went with the blessing of the PM and the senior staff because I, you know, had a pretty good run of it in the PMO. I'd been promoted a few times, which was great. I had really interesting jobs in there. Um, I was a political advisor, did all the question time stuff, did a lot of the media stuff. Um, you know, I did a lot, I knew more about Malcolm Turnbull when he was opposition leader than probably he knew about himself. Wow. Um, so which was a great files. experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the, yeah, that's right. All you know, it's a bit cliche, but yes, all the dirt files oh, and all that yeah. kind of thing. The, the pecuniary interests for all the different shadow ministers, <laughs> I had them all catalogued and filed away. And, you know, that, that kind of stuff that that you end up doing when you work in a, in a political office and you're trying to gain any advantage that you can. And by the end of it, um, I, I you know was was offered a job to be one of the treasurer's press secretaries, and I was only 25. It felt like I was too young to do such a role, but Swanee wow. had been someone I'd worked with in the tactics committee for question time tactics each day, which Albo chaired. Albo as the uh, leader of the house, he's now PM, but back then he was wow. the chair of tactics uh, and Swanee and his, um, and his staff, um, his um, deputy chief of staff was Jim Chalmers, who's now the, the federal treasurer. And Jim gave me the tap on the shoulder and said, you want to move next door? Uh, and with the approval of the, the PM's team, I, I did move next door with a view to probably going back to Rudd's office if we'd won that 2010 election with Rudd as leader. But, as we know, um, 
the, uh, the there was an earthquake of sorts underneath the Labor Party in the months that followed. There was a change of prime minister, and I stayed with Wayne um, when he was the deputy PM, and, and all the way through, with the exception of twelve months when I took a sabbatical working on the Olympic Games in London, I was with Wayne all the way through to the end. Uh, and with the party and by extension working pretty closely with Julia and her team when she was prime minister. And so like, you've always been a cricket fan. Um, I, I read uh, that when Mark Wall got sacked, you, you went to the ACB offices to protest. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. I, I remember writing that at, when I first Props, moved to journalism. Yeah. Well, I'm in just... hindsight, it was, it was the right <laughs> call on reflection, but the irrational views of an 18 year old boy. Right. Yeah, um, yeah I, I was always a cricket nut. Like I had that experience, not a million miles away from yours. Like your wonderful mm-hmm. book last year, which speaks of your 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 childhood being scattered with cricketing memories. Like so, it is for me. Um, yeah, you know the Channel Nine commentary team were the greatest babysitter of all time. That's true. Um, and, and the ABC radio coverage as well. Like I, at a very early age, loved listening to the radio and syncing it up with the telly and. And all the rest of it, a very relatable experience, I'm sure for you. Yeah, yeah, Jim Maxwell. And so in that era, was it was Tim Lane? Had he moved Tim. on by then? No, it was Tim and Jim for most of it. In fact, yeah. I took a photo of Tim and Jim this year in the Adelaide Media Centre. I saw them having a chat, oh. and I thought, I wonder how long it's been since these two guys have had a photo together. And I asked them, I said, it's been a really long time. So I took a photo and, and popped it on Twitter because you know they were defining voices of my youth. And um, as I say, like sort of sitting around watching cricket on on Channel Nine as well and never really thinking I was going to end up working in this caper but I don't know maybe part of me did I went to the 2005 Ashes series in England as a backpacker Um, I paid I'll I'll never forget paying 350 quid to a tout um, online um, immediately before the series to get into day one Uh, I didn't have 350 quid needless to say I didn't have 350 cents like I had nothing I got my dad's credit card out which was a you know break glass in the event of an emergency when abroad backpacking on on a um what do you call it when you defer uni for a year or a gap year or yeah a semester it was my I guess it would have been my third year of uni and I wanted to play cricket in England and I wanted to you know take in the the Ashes series and so I was there for Glen McGrath's 500th wicket it was 17 wickets in a day one of the most influential I suppose day one um, uh, stretches you could conceive of with uh, yeah. Steve Harmison taking five wickets, but hitting Ricky Ponting, hitting Justin Langer in the helmet, Australia collapsing early, and, and the, the the tone was set for the, the two months that would follow. But yeah, I remember being there in 2005, and you know, at that point, I was just a, a youngster, roused about young labour working in that electorate office job that I spoke of before, and and saying to people, yeah, one day, one day I'll I'll um, I'll, uh, I'll I'll travel the world talking about cricket on the radio and oh, um, wow. I'll, I'll write and I'll write for the wisdom almanac. I remember oh. saying that and maybe I manifested it or something like that, bit of a cliche, yeah. but um, that I, you know, these days I write a lot for the almanac and um, yes. and I'm a columnist for the wisdom cricket monthly magazine and, and obviously have the great privilege of being a broadcaster around the world doing this. So yeah, it, it was a long time before, but maybe there was something in the back of my mind that thought that when politics was over, that this could be an option. And there was a bit of a transition there, well, a decade ago, almost to the day, um, 2013 um, Australia Day, uh, 26th of January, um, I, I uh, it was pretty obvious we were going to lose that election. And by that stage, I developed um, a lot of trust with Wayne Swan. He, he continues to be one of the people I'm closest to in my life. Um, he's been, you know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say he's been a, a real father figure to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I love him dearly. 
I wrote his book when he finished in politics as well. So there's been that yeah, relationship um, for, for a long time. And um, I, I said, look, we're probably going to lose this year. Can we use your megaphone for a few other things? Like for me, one of those things is the Republic. Yeah. I, I want to talk. I want you to talk more about that. And he's like, yeah, let, like let's do that this year. And we started that off by writing an essay, uh, which got reproduced in the Age and the City Morning Herald, and ended up on the front page on Australia Day 2013 about um, Bodyline, um, eight decades on from Bodyline, mm-hmm. 32, 33, and linking that to Australian republicanism, and that went down wonderfully. Uh, and I thought, oh shit, okay, so. I've just written effectively a cricket essay and it's gone down well, albeit not in my name. Um, Maybe there could be something in this when we do lose the election. And so it was. We lost in August 2013 and a couple of months later, I was somehow um, embedded within the cricket media. So you you did some writing, but then you did White white Line Wireless. Was was that the first broadcasting bit that you did or was there stuff before that? I mean, I, I might have done the occasional cross, you know, into radio, but the first ball by ball stuff was, um, yeah, like a, a guerrilla radio enterprise that uh, my friend and colleague, um, Jeff Lemon, was running out of his living room in uh, in Brunswick. So the idea behind this, uh, which first started in the UK with, uh, um, you'd remember, Test Match Sofa, which started in the 2009 Ashes and, and became a cult hit, basic principle, um, uh, sitting on your sofa, watching the television, commentating the cricket, and it going out on internet radio. Um, it was very controversial at the time because you know you can you can see why the conventional radio stations who bought the rights would be kind of shitty about this, and so it was with the BBC who actively tried to get Test Match Sofa shut down a number of times, and the ECB <laughs> stripped accreditations. It was a complete brouhaha for the years that Sofa was at the peak of its powers. And when I'd lived in the UK on the Olympic Games in 11-12, I'd listened to lots of SOFA and I thought, gee, Australia could do something like this. It wasn't like a sign of disrespect to the ABC. It was more an idea that an alternative radio commentary, you know, a bit sweary, maybe a bit beery, could work. And Jeff had the same idea independently of me. And he'd started this organisation, which became known as White Line Wireless. And I rocked up for what was their second series. It was in the UAE, Australia, Pakistan, 2014. Um, yes. By that point, I was still working in my post-politics job. I, I, you know, I was writing columns, but I had a day job working um, working uh, in the superannuation sector. I didn't last long there, but it was where I was, you know, earning a living whilst writing columns for the ABC and, and other places from time to time. And um, I walked into this um, living room in my in my um, in my cricket training kit. I'd been at training that night. I was probably in my, you know, Endeavour Hills Cricket Club shorts, training shirt, jumper over the top. And Jeff tells the story of me getting in there like I'd like I've been there forever. Like it just came so naturally to me to be wow. narrating cricket ball by ball off the telly. And I didn't leave. The next two weeks I was in there every single day. I, I cancelled <laughs> all my plans. Um and it proved to be really influential because it brought Jeff and me together. And it was pretty yes. clear from the assembled crew on that commentary that we were the two that wanted to make a go of it outside of internet radio um, and that we had a lot of shared interests and and that was the start of something and it wasn't long after that that we spoke about well how can we start doing this for real and and inside the next 12 months we well, we did start doing it for real so in 2018 when when australia toured the uae for the pakistan series you did something quite gutsy and brave and bought the right so tell us about that I quite like the fact that it's four years on from um, 
it's a nice symmetry there between what I described before about the first series where I did, you know, commentary off the sofa. Um, One cycle on, Australia are back in the UAE, same opposition. But the difference this time is that I'd spent, you know, three years very much in the cricket media. Like I was on radio on SEN commentating the sandpaper moment on in Cape Town. Um, yeah, I'd worked right. on Test Match Special as a commentator. I'd worked on the ABC as a commentator. I'd done television commentary over here in the UK. So I'd kind of established myself in the intervening years as a broadcaster. I wouldn't say as a senior broadcaster, but as someone who was like getting gigs in the gig economy, if you like. How did you um, do that, by the way? Did you just send samples of your of your work on White Line? And uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I know it was a bit sweary and stuff, but how would they know that you you had the goods? Uh, yeah, I wish it was a meritocracy. The truth is, I was just able to talk a good game. I think. Yeah, um, yeah right. In, in the Windies, I, I, my first tour. So I sold a house, um, which I bought with the proceeds of me finishing in politics, as you do. You know, I had a bit of a payout. I'm like, well, I'll, I'll buy a house. I actually bought a house. Um, back in the suburb where I grew up, the street where I grew up in Endeavour Hills in Melbourne, wow. at the time thinking, well, I wouldn't mind running for this seat. Oh. Um, the federal electorate of Holt, um, you might have seen it um, come up in the news quite a, quite a bit a couple of years ago when the federal member then, Anthony Byrne, disgraced himself uh, in a number of recorded calls that um, were leaked to 60 Minutes. That's right. But, you know, I had a sense at the time that um, that, that, that might be in my future. Now, it was naive of me to think that for lots of different reasons, but I, you know, I was turning 30. I'm like, well, maybe I can have a parliamentary career soon. Um, this might be the right moment for me. I'd done quite well in an internal Labor Party ballot. I was a state conference delegate. I was a national conference delegate. Like I was still on that, on that trajectory, even though I was doing a lot of cricket stuff. And I, you know, upon realizing that I wanted to be a cricket freelancer and kind of getting rid of the parachute, I needed some money. Yeah. So I flogged the house. <laughs> Um, gave myself a you know a parcel of money, not a big one, enough to um to feed me and water me for what I thought would be about a year if it didn't work out too well. First stop was the West Indies for two Test matches. Had bugger all work. Had a I was writing for a joint called Wisden India who were paying me fifty bucks a day. Um, like you know it was genuine like handsome mouth stuff. Kindly Dan Bredig, a mutual friend of ours, let me stay in a twin share in his hotel rooms. Um, and, and I had enough frequent flyer points to get me back and forth without, you know, breaking the bank. And I, I was able to set up there. And before the first test match in Dominica, I went up to the um, the host of the radio coverage in, on the West Indies Broadcasting Corporation, told him that I what I had done on Australian radio. I kind of um, massaged the facts a little bit. I gave the impression that White Line Wireless might have been a little bit more official than it was. <laughs> and he said, okay, we don't have an Australian commentator. You're in. We're oh, not going to wow. pay you, but you're in. Um, so I, I got the chance to call Adam Voges 100 on Test Taboo the next day. Oh, my um, God. And, and, and the second test in Jamaica, I was kind of ensconced within the, the team. That went well. By that point, I was doing some work for the ABC, like radio updates for the ABC. They knew I was out there. I was freelancing to them as a writer. And, and when the ashes rolled around, um, I, I was right place, right time. Um, got given some work commentating on the tour games before the first test match. And in the second of those tour games, um, Australia were playing against Essex and Nathan Lyon was bowling from our commentary end. And Essex's number 11 um, came down the track and twatted a ball through the commentary box window where I was calling. Oh my God. And it took out the bloke next to me. It happened to be like this BBC broadcasting legend, Pat Murphy, who'd been calling or broadcasting on cricket and footy for 50 years. And this audio kind of went, you know, viral of Pat yeah. Murphy being taken out and me being the commentator on it. Um, 
and I don't think that was unrelated to the fact that um, later in the summer, um, when the test matches ended and the one day started, um, BBC offered that gig to me. So I did some one day international cricket for TMS at the end of that whirlwind trip. And I was kind of away. I didn't get quite as much work from the ABC as I would have liked initially, but I, I got some work and, you know, I managed to parlay that into other stuff and commercial opportunities on talk sport over here, doing the IPL and, you know, just doing enough. Yeah. So that when I said I was a cricket commentator, it, it rang true. It wasn't like a bullshit claim like it had been at the start. I actually had done proper grown-up cricket yeah, by that yeah. stage. You had hours behind you. Yeah. And so then in 2018, you you used, I believe, some of that money from the house uh, to get the right, get the rights to. Yeah. You bought the Australian broadcast rights, didn't you, to that series? Yeah. 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 So that, that's the link back through. So like, yeah. It, it, Sometimes gets um, that story gets truncated a bit. Like I just rocked up off the street and bought the rights. It's not quite true. It's no. worth noting that I, I was a little bit established. But yeah, the yes, um, the 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 way it sequenced was that um, it was the first test series after Sandpaper. So Smith and Warner were um, were in the middle of their twelve um, month bans, um, and I effectively tried to work out whether anybody was going to do a radio commentary of the series. Now, remembering that part of the reason White Line Wireless started was that back in 2013, the ABC stopped going overseas to cover series over there, or at least for a while. They, they didn't do yeah. that series, and they, they, they pretty much retreated from overseas tours with the exception of, like, the Ashes, right? Massive yeah. brouhaha. Um, John Faulkner in the Senate um, giving uh, giving a speech, kicking off about it. It was a genuine news, yeah. news story that there'd be no radio coverage. And that was what inspired Jeff to start White Line Wireless. Well, five years on from that, four years on from when I found Jeff and found the White Line Wireless sofa, um, there was this series. And it became pretty obvious to me from the phone calls I was making, it was going to be no radio coverage. I'm like, okay, well, I, I, in the past, I had spoken kind of over a few beers that, well, maybe one day I might do this myself, but at the ground, not off the sofa. Maybe I'll try and buy the rights. Maybe I'll do it officially. And suddenly this presented a golden opportunity. A lot of interest in the series because of the, the sandpaper bands. Australia's first hit out in that format since Smith & Warner had to make way. Yes. Uh, it, it was only two test matches. So it was all over in a fortnight. I had a pretty good understanding of how to put a broadcast on by that point from having worked on them. And I had Jeff by my side. who was going to be my co-commentator. I had enough sense of what I needed to do to... Um, create a credible radio team. So I, I spoke to people like Mike Hussey, who was doing television. He came and worked with us. As did Brendan Julian, who was doing television. They were both very happy to take a second gig. Better being on radio, earning some money than, than sitting in the green room watching on the telly. Yeah. Bazid Khan, who's a, an acclaimed Pakistani commentator and the nephew of Imran yes. Khan. He as well, Peter Lawler, who's a, a veteran journalist at the Australian newspaper. And we had this team, we had this commentary team. Um, and so it went. And as you say, there was a pretty big risk at play there because my partner and I, um, you might be able to hear our newborn crying in the next room. Uh, my partner and I were, were saddling up to buy a house at the time. I had this allocation of money. I'd recovered my financial position after the first year of freelancing. I had enough money to, to buy a house with her in London. Um, not, a, not a pot of gold, but you know enough um, to get a deposit down. And um, yeah, all of the costs associated with buying the rights and putting the show to air was that entire house deposit. So I had to make the money back. or And I didn't really tell her just how much risk I'd exposed myself to at the start of it all. But mercifully, in the space of a fortnight, a lot of hard work, a lot of phone calls, a lot of negotiation, I managed to get an, enough commercial partners with me on the broadcast to 
to cover our costs and, and get the show made. And there was a lot of media interest around it as well. Um, and it became, I suppose, a, a story that um, will get told probably for the rest of my life um, in one form or another um, due to well, the different things that happened along the way. When you say one form or another, we're allowed to talk about one of those forms? Is that So that's in development, <laughs> isn't it? That, there's a movie to be made about. There's a movie in the process or being developed at the yeah. moment. Yeah, 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 there is. I mean, it's it's a story about basically two. It, I'm I'm quite a lot younger in the scripts, but um, there was a documentary made, a radio documentary made by Radio National about um, the right. Jeff and Me story, and it was through the prism of the UAE rights heist, as it was described on there, and I think it was described in there and a lot of media coverage. And the um, uh, I think what was most interesting was the second test match. Well, apart from the first test being an absolute epic with Usman Khawaja batting for eight hours to save the match, um, which is just one of the great moments. And you could see our listener numbers swelling and, oh, you know, wow. people listening around the world. We just felt like we had everybody with us listening to our commentary as we got to the pointy end. Um, you know, we'd been on air for 21 and a half hours each. By the end of that test match, it was 40 degrees. It was, you know, it was real belt and braces stuff. Um, but then on the, the second test match, we arrived at Abu Dhabi and it's illegal to stream in that country. And it's illegal to use a VPN. And we're like, fuck, we're in strife here. We can't get the coverage out. After all the adulation from Dubai, we couldn't make the broadcast for Abu Dhabi without acting illegally. So we had no choice but to run that second test streamed, uh, which isn't isn't legal there. And because they don't want people showing dissent on YouTube, so they don't let any streaming to happen. After, after 20 seconds, every stream drops out, or it did back in 2018, and if you use a VPN to get around that, that's also punishable by going to prison. So we thought, well, it's a risk we have to take. There's too much money riding on this. So the second test match was done through a, a 3G phone connection um, tethering into our commentary kit, which was running through a VPN in Dubai, which we got from some dodgy guy who told us that if we get caught, don't tell anyone that he sold it to us. So that's oh. all part of the that's Mate, all part I of the story no in, in test number two. That is amazing. And all the tech ran fine. I can't believe it, but it did. No dropouts. The whole thing works across. That second test was a four-day match, but yeah, we 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 somehow got the, got the show to wear, and um, and, and and yeah, it ended. I mean, it was. I still look back at it like sometimes quite emotionally. Like, I can't believe we did it yeah. because it gave us a toehold, right? Like whereas before, I've been a broadcaster who'd done a few things. Now I was a guy who'd done a few things and had done this kind of big thing. So how many series have you done by buying the rights and then on selling them to, I guess, SEN and maybe other stations? I do. I, I kind of do half of what I did in that Pakistan series. I don't buy the rights myself, but um, SEN are a great partner in these projects. Yeah. So um, they buy the broadcast rights. Um, they supply me with, you know, a budget of sorts, which, you know, um, gives me the scope to build the team. But I wear the risk and, you know, if things yeah. get tits up, then it's it's I'm the one carrying the can and, so we've just announced today our you know broadcast team for the India Test series that's coming up in in a couple of weeks, and I'm really proud of that, and looking forward to being on the road again in Nagpur as of February nine. And it doesn't feel like it. I mean, it's obviously a big thing, but it doesn't feel like a big thing anymore. We took SEN to Pakistan last year for that extraordinary yeah. series. We went to Sri Lanka. We've done three or four Test series in England, where England have been playing at home, but the broadcast has gone back to Australia. Um, we've Obviously, um, well, I don't run the Australian um, summers, but I'm, I'm a member of the commentary team for that uh, and love nothing more than getting behind the mic and, and being a narrator of today's play. In addition to all the other stuff, right? Like, you know, you said at the start, how, how, how would other people describe me? Probably when I'm at my most intense is when I have to 
do have to spin plates, right? Like I'm effectively the chief caller, the executive producer, the, um, you know, the techie, even I've got no technical experience, the point of contact for everybody. And to do that kind of thing um, requires a fair bit of flexibility. And it means you have to be on at all times. There's no, there's no downtime. So, yeah, I suppose that brings out the best in me and occasionally probably the worst as well. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm a an executive producer, so I know what it's like handling actors. I can only imagine what it's like handling cricket commentators, particularly for, <laughs> former grades. Probably, probably, probably the the toughest thing is, um, you know, this is going to sound like a really small thing, but um, just punctuality. Like I think, yep. um, and this is not to be critical of anybody I worked with specifically, but and some <laughs> of them aren't this way at all. Like I, I think of someone like Simon Cadditch, who's never late to a commentary stint, fills up his notebook all day like he's a print journalist, like the most the most professional person you can work with, but but some who every single commentary sent, you got to find them because they're yeah. always late. You know, yeah. like they, they they get, and maybe that's um, maybe that's having been in an environment as players where they have someone who's telling them where to be and when to be there. I remember when Dermot Burton retired from being a, an Aussie Rules footballer, he said that the most difficult adjustment was that he never had to do anything for himself before, like buying car insurance. Mm. Yeah, simple things that we would just do as a matter of course that always been looked after for him. There, there must be some similarities there to professional cricketers at the top level who've been on the conveyor belt since they were teenagers and have you know, a lot of things done for them. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, Lisa McCune, I, I don't think I was speaking out of school, but she used to say after, a, a you know, a long series of television, which we could go for 40 weeks, you lose all skills as a as an actual human being, you, you lose the skills of going to the supermarket and doing yeah. things for yourself. And I mean, you're used to literally walking out of your trailer and someone putting an umbrella over your head straight away. <laughs> you well, know? yeah, I think this is, the, this is the equivalent of that, right? So yeah. um, when you don't have a lot of control over your free time, even something like, I mean, even when you sit down on the couch of a night to chuck on television, I mean, you've got to be mindful of your skin folds if you're a cricketer these days, right? Like the world yeah. has changed a lot for these guys. Everything they put in their mouth is monitored and, um, yeah, it's an example of the control of their life. When they finish, no one's paying attention to any of that. So maybe um, punctuality for some of them is um, something that goes by the wayside as a consequence. But, you know, I, I, I cherish the time I get to spend picking the brains of these guys because it doesn't matter how obsessive we are about the game and how much we know about the history of it and the storylines and so mm-hmm. on. We, we've never been out there in the 22 yards that matter most facing bowling at 150 clicks although in saying that i know you have in a wonderful documentary you made about body <laughs> line but but generally speaking none yeah, of us yeah. have that that level no. of experience no what a terrifying experience it would be um <laughs> i i have to ask you so so question two kind of relates to this and, and you know you, you could call on being a commentator uh what's the most unhelpful feedback you've received yeah, i really wonder when i listen back to this and i will um because you know even now i'm insecure in, in all the usual ways that most of us are. Um, I'll, I'll listen back until this point of the interview and I'll be interested to see whether it marries up with this answer. Um, occasionally people, not occasionally, quite a lot, people still say to me, you talk too fast. And like my response is quite defensive. It's along the lines of, you don't think I fucking know that. Um, you don't think people have been saying this to me my whole life. Um, I try really hard not to but my natural cadence is quicker than the average bear. I don't know why. I wish it wasn't. Um, I really, really try and slow down. Cricket on the radio is good for that because there's a natural rhythm to the way you describe the bowler coming to the crease and letting the ball go and left through to the keeper and the score remains this. Like you are tempered by the the game. 
But in my chat with you for the last half an hour, I might have been going at a million miles an hour. I'm I'm not sure. And maybe if I'm sort of doing a psychoanalysis on myself, it it goes to the fact that, you know, I wanted to be successful at whatever I was doing at a young age. And I went to a pretty ordinary high school in the outer suburbs of Melbourne, nothing wrong with it, but nothing that was distinguishing it from anywhere else. And that I needed to stand out uh, wherever I went and by um, communicating quickly, it meant I was getting more information across and I don't know, maybe relaying to the person at the other end that I was smart or something. I don't know. There's probably something in all of that. But yeah, it does shit me because I know I do have the habit of talking too quickly and it annoys me uh, because I know that it can be annoying to the listener and it, it, it maybe can reflect when I'm nervous as well and when I'm self-conscious and natural anxiety flowing through that. So yeah, there's probably a bit to work through there, but that is the, the piece of advice or piece of feedback I get, which always gets my back up. So interesting. I mean, I, I don't mean to make this about me at all, but I used to have a stutter which came out when I was really stressed and I had to interview mm. Ian Healy once and I was just praying that it wouldn't come out, but it, it, it came out on that day. And I just remember being eternally, you know, just, just the shame of it because I just, you know, if there was one person I wanted to actually just not have a stutter around, it was Ian Healy, you know, <laughs> um, I, can, I can imagine that. I mean, he, he, it's probably a good person to have that with because he's such a laid back, lovely guy yeah. heels that he probably wouldn't have even noticed. No, um, but yeah, but I, yeah. I hear you like when you, those big interviews, right? Like when you're live to where, um, like I think my communication skills have really improved since doing television because like on TV, you've got a director in your ear the whole time and your, and your, um, your rhythm is controlled by stuff outside your control. What's getting flashed up on screen at the same time or whatever else it is. And, I like to think I've got better at controlling my pace through that. Um, but I still look back at some questions that I ask. I'm like, fuck, I've just spoken for 60 seconds when asking a question that should have been 20. Um, like I'm trying to convey too much information in the question. So there's always room for improvement. But yeah, the more I do, I suppose the better I get. That's the way it should be. What I love about your interviews is you always stay on point. You just you did never do what I just did then and tell a story about yourself. So, you know, <laughs> I think that requires a lot of, a lot of discipline. Um, What's the failure you most cherish, mate? Yeah, this is a bit indulgent, and I want this to come away, come across the right way because the the um, the knock on effect of it is is bad for the country, in, in my opinion. Um, but in many respects, selfishly, the best thing that ever happened to me was Labor losing the twenty thirteen election. Um, you know, I told people that I would leave politics if we, regardless of the result of that ballot. But if I'm being honest with myself, if we miraculously one in 13 and Labor had it been re-elected, I probably would have stayed. Like, mm. you know, I, I probably would have been convinced to stay or I would have convinced myself to stay. And by that point, you know, I packed a lot into my late 20s. I was nearly turning 30. I think I, I, I just turned 29 during the campaign, come to think of it. So I was still a young man. And in hindsight, I had probably too much going on. Um, it, it's, it's a job that I would have been better equipped emotionally for in my thirties, not my twenties, but um, yeah, working absurd hours where you're getting up, um, you know, at well, 5.15 or earlier, you know, um, a lot of the time for something to be on the first phone hookups of the day. You're not going to bed till stupid o'clock. You're drinking too much. I'm not saying that you have to drink too much, but a lot of people do. I certainly was one of them. Um, You're pushing the limits too far. I've said before um, in the past that, 
um, I think a lot of people who are close to the flame in politics lead their private lives the way they lead their public lives. And what I mean by that is you are conditioned and kind of taught, or certainly in my era, I hope it's changed a bit since then, to push the line, sorry to use the old cricket um, uh, jargon here about the line, but push the line and, and cross the line as far as you can each day. Yeah. Um, just cheat just cheat a little bit if it means winning and getting away with it. Yeah. yeah. However you can, whatever angle you can get just to give your team, the red team, a better chance of winning that day. As someone who's involved in the hustle and bustle of, uh, of political media, um, that, that's your kind of starting point. The problem is um, when you are hardwired that way as a political functionary, that informs your personal life as well. Um, you know, you, you do the wrong thing by people. Um, you don't want to, but you do. Um, whether that's well, surely added to by uh, the amount of beers you're pouring down your throat, I'm sure that's part of it. But, um, you, you know, you you become a more deceitful person, I think, uh, in that yeah. environment. It's like a big school camp. Everybody yeah. knows everybody's secrets, but no one would ever really talk about them. And I'm not saying they're all salacious secrets. They're little things. It's like the microaggressions that can be the undoing yeah. of a of an intimate relationship. The same applies for the friendships up there. And because you all work with each other, um, there's that extra layer of, um, you know, your best friends. There's this like you'd walk over glass for your colleagues, but um, you're living in each other's pockets up to 18 hours a day, six and a half days a week. You're living in your suit six and a half days per week. And when you're not, working you probably push it to excess and i really 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 needed to unwind that it took yeah. me like a good few years of therapy to get and understand all of that um they have a much better understanding of of what i've been involved in and how i needed to change that corresponded with when i was starting in cricket as well which is a good thing because i think had i um had i not detoxed from politics it probably would have meant that i'd be an inferior journalist now i don't do a lot of writing anymore but i used to write a lot yep. I used to write a lot of profiles i loved writing those profiles and being an empathetic listener and um, asking good questions and so on and 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 kind of um, throwing yourself into your subject. Um, I think that was helped by me um, distancing myself from all the bullshit that um, that was Canberra. So great experience, cherish every minute of it, loved serving, you know, the, the people I served and I suppose the party and peripherally the country working in that building. Um, but by losing the election, it meant that I had to change direction myself personally. Um, and was able to get my life on a on a much surer footing in my 30s. And I'm towards the end of that decade now. I'm 38. Um, you know, have a, a fiance who I love very much. We've been in a relationship since 2017 um, and a healthy relationship and a truthful, honest, authentic relationship um, that wouldn't have been possible when I was working in Canberra. Two beautiful daughters that I could never have brought up the way that I bring up now had I still been in politics. So purely selfishly, um, that is a setback that has served me well, even if it probably didn't serve the country well that Tony Abbott became the prime minister. <laughs> would you would you ever consider writing about that period? Because it's, it's an extraordinary life. And, and I mean, you see the thick of it and shows like West Wing. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, you don't really get an insight into just the uh, living out of each other's pockets and the kind of round-the-clock vibe, you know. I reckon it's of its time as well. So it could be done as a good piece or a good book or a good you know, series. I, I, I truly believe that politics isn't culturally as bad now as it used to be because, yeah, right. well, A, there's been a light, a, a light shone on, on Parliament House and that's part of it. Yeah, but yeah, I think yeah. also like things can only be pushed so far. Like they, they do, like things do snap. And I reckon that people go up to Canberra now, do so with their eyes wide open and yeah. the advice they get and the examples that are set for them 
aren't the same as the examples that were set for them when I was an impressionable 23-year-old who would have done anything for my elders. Yeah. Like there, there is no line I wouldn't have crossed to um, to make my people proud, Yeah, which is why I worked bonkers hours. And, I, you know, it's almost like a, a test of strength. How long can you be in the office each night? How many emails can you send it to in the morning? I had a had a boss who used to, he'll never admit this, but I'm certain that he used to set his alarm for three in the morning to send 20 emails before going back to bed again to just give the impression that he was up at three o'clock, all that kind of bullshit. Um, uh, you know, there, there is, yeah, there, there, there was something unhealthy about that time in federal politics and I don't think it's quite as bad in state politics. You know, there, there was a television show the BBC made that didn't last long. It was called Party Animals. That's um, right. That, that feels like um, Matt Smith was in it, who went on to play um, Doctor Who and he's yes. had a number of other sort of senior roles. But he played the young staffer. And I remember as like a 25-year-old, I'm like, fuck, that's me. Yeah, that's right. that, that's kind that's kind of me. I, I'm I, there's a lot of similarities that we share here. Ollie Reader in the thick of it. Um, you know, there are moments when I go, "Fuck, that's me." I watch the thick <laughs> of it every three months on repeat. Not everything about Ollie, you know. And I've got to know the actor that plays him a little bit. Chris Addison in, in recent years, he's a massive cricket fan, and we see each other at various cricket things. But there are parts of his character, Ollie Reader, who I go, "Yeah, I, I see that," but um, but probably um, dialed up to eleven. Um, so. Um, yeah, there, there might be something that put it this way. Um, it's nowhere near as glamorous as the West Wing. I can assure you of that. Um, you might, <laughs> that. That might be the motivation for people going up there at some sort of uh, implicit level. We all watch the West Wing growing up and we all want to serve the country in this noble and dignified way when you're aligned to a political party. But yeah, it's far gr- grittier and tougher than that. Um, but yeah, my sincere hope is that um, it, it's it's improved in in recent years and it's a better place to go. So if you are a young person listening to this and you want to um, work in politics, don't sort of take my story as something to um, dissuade you from it. Go up there with eyes wide open and, and live a life that you can be happy with throughout the time you're in Canberra or anywhere else rather than coming away from it, you know, laden with regrets about, um, you know, things that have happened in, in your personal life and elsewhere that that you're less satisfied with as a more mature grown-up. Uh, question four, mate, which word or phrase do you most overuse? So two different categories. I think on the podcast, like I'm hyper aware of my ticks. I mean, you know this too from making a podcast and the things that you lean to. I say when Jeff speaks, like the, the program we make is called The Final Word. We make a number of episodes per week. So a lot of it's done through Zoom, like what we're doing right now. So even though it's conversational, it can be a bit monologue at mm. times because it's hard to um, it's hard to interject. So we try not to. So Jeff might speak for 90 seconds. And I always, I feel like I, I say too often, yeah, right. Like I'm so agreeable. <laughs> I, go, I go, yeah, right. Then I leap off with my monologue. I kind of agree and accept the premise of his thing before going on into my own, even if I disagree. It's a way of, um, I guess, avoiding conflicts. Not that we're brawling on the show, but yeah, right. And on to the next thing. So that, that's um, that's a phrase I use too often on that platform. On commentary, there, there are two things that, I'm, I probably shouldn't um, say this in a way because people will listen to this and then listen to me commentate and they'll go, ha ha, he's done it again. But um, <laughs> you you and I both grew up watching Channel 9, as we said before, and that quintessential Channel 9 Australian piece of commentary, edged and taken! <laughs> edged and taken, I cannot stop saying. I cannot stop saying. And I also say... Um, 
There's a shuffling before and he's given. <laughs> I say given. Like I emphasize given and I emphasize edged and taken. And there's a there's a piece in the um SEN promo, the stinger they play for all of our intros to test cricket these days, which is where I'm calling the Scott Boland six for seven or six for five, whatever it is, at the MCG a couple of years ago. And his last wicket, I had the privilege of being on air for. And I say, edged and taken. It's a movie script, but it's the edged and taken. I wish I could. I wish I could edit that out of the promo because I say it so often. And that you're yeah, given. Um, so, and I think that comes down to having those words just hardwired into my internal commuter computer. Sorry, and they, and they come out whenever those modes of dismissal have been recorded on the field. Even though I wish I could say something that's a little bit different to give some variety for the listener, something to work on. <laughs> Look, I I don't notice, mate, but it's hilarious. And, and I think there's a finite m- amount of things you can actually say in that situation, though. Edged and taken is is one option of, of maybe yeah. three. Yeah, that, that, that's true. I guess it's just um, if you're listening back to a highlights package where there have been, say, three caught behinds in, in the two-hour session and you said the same thing twice, I mean, yes, there, there is an element of me needing to be <laughs> aware of that, shall we say. You don't want to... You know, you don't want to become a, a you don't want to become a sort of a cliche of yourself either. Final question: Do you have a motto? I do, I do. Um, uh, I, I, I've, <laughs> I, I've um, I listened to Will Anderson's um, philosophy podcast, and you know how he asked this question um, him, on his show. I think he phrased it slightly differently, doesn't he? It's um, he doesn't use motto. He um, uh, there's, there's philosophy. Yeah. Philosophy, yeah. What, yeah, yeah. What is your philosophy? Yeah, that, that's right. Off the top of the, off the top of the podcast. So I have considered this before, um, but for me, it's um, whenever I'm under pressure and have a lot of things to do at the same time, and I think at the moment that applies to having a, a two-week-old baby and trying to do a lot of things at the same time, which all have you know a comparable level of importance, but you can't do them all at the same time. Um, I, I, I say to myself a version of eat the elephant which is derived from how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time. Yes. Um, so whenever I feel under the pump, I go eat the elephant, which to me is like a way of saying to myself, you can only do one thing at a time, eat the elephant. So I, I, I say that to myself all of the time, be it when I'm racing around with seven minutes to air on a commentary where the lines just dropped out back to Australia. The fucking microphone isn't working. I can't find Jeremy Coney, uh, you know, um, <laughs> And I've got three people calling me from Melbourne all at the same time. And I haven't written my script yet for the opening part of the thing. Right, right. I've got seven minutes. I can do all of these things. How do you eat the elephant? Eat the elephant, eat the elephant. And I'll work out how do I, you know, do that in quick succession. So, yeah, that that is, I suppose that can, that can count as a motto. 